Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Scott Wurzbacher. And today, we're going to find out who's really afraid of the big bad wolf. I have with me Jess Edberg, the executive director of the Dorothy Moulter Museum in Ely, Minnesota. You might remember her from episode 66 when she came on the show to tell us about the life of Dorothy Moulter, who spent most of her life in the remote wilderness of the Minnesota Boundary Waters and serving root beer to traveling passersby. That episode was a huge hit. And as it turns out, Jess has many of her own adventure stories, which includes a full through hike of the Appalachian Trail. Jess studied equine science in college and has a degree in animal science from the University of Wisconsin. She has a diverse career focusing on wildlife, including trapping wolves and deer for research and providing education and information services for the International Wolf Center. The part about trapping wolves for research that really caught my attention. And I'm so excited to learn from Jess today about her adventures and the mysterious cunning and the pack nature of the wolf. Jess, welcome back to the campfire. Thanks for having me. It's, it's nice to be back. Yeah, so fun. And I love your background for those that are listening and, and can't see you're sitting in a looks like it looks like a, a Minnesota scene with some some beautiful lakes and trees and conifers. Uh, it's taken me right back there to, to my trip to Minnesota. Um, Jess, I am so excited to hear about your adventures. You've had like a whole lifetime of adventures. And it seems like there's sort of a thread that's kind of tied all your little journeys together. Um, but I wonder if we could just start with um, your journey leading up to your time at the International Wolf Center. Sure. Um, you know, and I feel like I need to to preface this with, I had no intention to end up where I am now. And I think it's important for young people to realize when you, if you choose to go to college and you think you know what you want to do, it's okay to shift gears and mm -hmm. to do something else. Because when we're 18, 19, 20, we, we think we know what we want, but mm -hmm. we change so much, you know, from 18 to 30 in our lives and in our interests in our passions. And sometimes we get kind of stuck and we think we're not meeting our goals or other people's expectations if we don't stay on the track that we set for ourselves. And, and that's kind of how I felt until I ended up here in Ely. And so when I graduated college with my horse degree, um, I had big plans and I was working at a vet clinic for horses um, west of the Twin Cities. And I loved my job. I loved what I was doing. And then um, I had already planned on doing this, this Appalachian Trail hike. Yeah. So the vet clinic hired me knowing I was going to do this and I would be gone for six months. And when I left, we had talked, I talked with the owner and we decided that, yep, when I'm coming back, they would like to hire me back and they were happy with my performance. So I left on the Appalachian trail thinking I would come back doing the same thing. Right. Um, so I was gone for six months, did a through hike of the Appalachian trail in 2001 and it it changed what I wanted to do. I thought I never thought of myself as going to grad school and getting a doctorate. And while I was hiking, you know, my confidence changed. I was much more self-aware after hiking. And I thought, I think I'm going to go to grad school and really focus on equine reproductive physiology, because that's kind of what I was focusing on at the vet clinic. And so I got back. And the job that I thought I would have wasn't there. <laughs> and, wow. you know, as a young person, 23, 24, it was crushing. I was really frustrated. And so started sending out resumes, cold calling different equine facilities, vet clinics, 
barns, you know, stables, trying to find work within a reasonable driving distance from my dad's house, which is where I, I was living at that point. And it was fall, you know, it was October and that's kind of the lull season for yeah. a lot of equine activities in Minnesota because we've got really cold winters. And so there's not a lot of hiring going on at that time. And I got um, odd jobs. I worked at Target for a while um, for their holiday season. I was bumping chairs at Afton Alps, which is a ski hill um, outside of the Twin Cities. I was at a cleaning company and I just felt really down and frustrated and started looking for graduate programs in equine reproductive physiology. And I wanted to go to Colorado. That's where a really great program was and they weren't taking students at the time. So I thought, well, what else do I really love to do? I love being outdoors. I just hiked the AT. And so I started looking for wildlife um, graduate positions sure, or yeah. ships and started just emailing. And of course, 2001, you know, email was there, but it was still right yep. early and yep. Google wasn't really there. And yeah. so I couldn't do online searches for all of these things. So I was just emailing professors at places where I thought it would be interesting to study, studying large carnivores or small carnivores. And I wanted to focus on pine martens. That was my favorite forest carnivore in Minnesota. They're a little weasel. Um, and I stumbled across the U of M and Dave Meach, who is a world-renowned wolf biologist. And I emailed and said, I'm interested in studying forest carnivores. Do you have anything, you know, what is your application process? Um, and now, during this time, I was also studying for the GRE, um, the graduate record exam, so I could apply. Right. And when I emailed Dave Meach, I had no idea who this guy was. Um, I didn't even say his name right. And he emailed back and he said, well, I have a two-year waiting list for the graduate program, but I have an internship up in Ely doing some field work, uh, trapping deer. Would that be interesting to you? If so, here's the application. And I thought, well, this is weird. Um, but you know, it's a job. Yep. It's field experience, which I had none with wildlife. And I was talking to my dad about it. And my dad, before my brother and I were born, used to come up here and go on Boundary Waters trips and was familiar with Ely. And he was also familiar with Dave Meach because he looked at me and he's like, um, hold on. And he reaches over <laughs> to the bookshelf and pulls off the famous 70s book, The Wolf, that Dave wrote. And he's like, is it this guy? And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's a really good sign. Wow. <laughs> this guy has awesome. a published book. And so I applied and did a phone interview and was hired. And I think the only reason I was hired for the position was because I have been deer hunting um, mm. since I was 15. So I thought that was at least 10 years. And when you're trapping wildlife, there are situations where um, the animal is injured and it's not often, but it's something that could happen. And so you have to be mentally prepared for essentially doing what's best for the animal, which sure. depending on the injury could mean dispatching it or, yep. or killing it. Understood. And I think that was like, oh, so she's killed deer before. Yeah. She probably has the, the mental and physical, you know, attributes of doing this job that that I want to have. And so I got hired and that's how I ended up in Ely. And um, so I was hired for a um, field technician position. This is 2002 now in February. I moved up here um, the beginning of February. There was a few feet of snow on the ground. It was really cold. And I started deer trapping for the wolf deer research project that Dave Meach started decades before and was funded and uh, managed through the U.S. Geological Survey, um, which sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense to people when you say the USGS, but 
you know, this was the seventies, late sixties that Dave started this project. And so that was kind of the, the entity that provided the umbrella for, um, funding for Dave. I gotcha. All right. So I want to time out for a second and then we're going to come back to this project, but I just want to touch on a couple of things that you said. So first of all, I loved the way that you preface this whole thing that we don't always know where we're going when we get started. Um, Near and dear to my heart, I have a 16 year old that's going to be a junior in high school. And so we're very, very gently kind of starting to think about things like that and you know where we want to go. And so um, I'll certainly be making sure that she listens to this episode, which will be great. Um, But I also want to touch on this uh, Appalachian Trail through hike. And that's probably a whole nother podcast. But I wonder if like just a few of the nuggets from that trip, because it sounds like that trip changed you, like you got in touch with with something that that created a shift and I just wonder if you could just touch on what happened there yeah it it's probably one of the accomplishments in my life that I'm most proud of you know and it some people they they hear that you've hiked the AT and they're like so you just walked for six months and yes that's what I did but it's so much more than that and it it's similar in how it it led me to a personal transition to when I did a semester abroad in college. You know, you whenever you take yourself out of your comfort zone and put yourself in a position that's new and strange and everything's unknown, you meet people you would never have met before. Mm-hmm. You your worldview just expands exponentially. Right. And I think that is really important for young people. Um, because often we, when we're growing up until we go off on our own after high school or whatever, you know, process people go through, um, we're limited to what our family exposes us to and to what our community exposes us to. And if we're from a really small community, sometimes that can be tighter. Of course, internet exists now. It didn't exist when I was going through this. So there's more access to information. Um, And you can travel virtually to different parts of the world, but actually having that experience changes you. And it's hard to explain until, unless you've gone through it. And I didn't want to hike the AT at first. Um, My partner at the time was super interested in it and convinced me that this would be a cool thing to do as a graduation kind of end cap celebration. And I read a book about it and and it was a kind of a memoir. And then I read Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. Yep. Yep. And the two of those books convinced me that it, even if I didn't finish, it would be a really good adventure. Yeah. So I did it. And we started, you know, down in Georgia, we went South to North. Our idea was we're going to have this very exciting conclusion to this by summiting Mount Katahdin at the end. So that was why we went south to north. And it was a lot harder physically than I imagined. You know, Flatlander, Minnesotan, you know, the high, what's Eagle Mountain, you know, that's the highest (laughs) peak. So, you know, trying to train for something where you're in the mountains 100% of the time, either going up or down, was difficult for me because I, I couldn't visualize it. Um, but it physically made me stronger. You know, my, my body changed in ways that it never could have yeah. by just doing regular, going to the gym or, you know, running or exercise. And so when I physically got stronger, it occurred to me that my body is capable of a lot of things that mm-hmm. I never considered. And then that slowly changed my mental kind of thinking in that, well, if I can do this physically and mentally, this, the, you know, being able to stay motivated and continue hiking, even though some days it felt like worse than the worst job ever, I can do whatever I want to do. And I can accomplish a lot of things that I never considered before. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. This podcast is a passion project for me because I absolutely love adventure. And it's thanks to the effort of my residential real estate team here in Charlotte, North Carolina, 
that many of you know as the W Realty Group, that this podcast gets funded. This awesome group of people have unmatched levels of competence and caring for our clients. If you know of anyone looking to buy or sell a home, our team serves the Charlotte, North Carolina market, but we can also help you find an agent anywhere throughout the US or Canada through our highly connected network. When you support our real estate business, you are also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for your referrals. I love this. So you, for you, it kind of started with sort of a physical transition that um, took you into this mental space and, and uh, really kind of delving and dialing that up. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So let's go back to the USGS Minnesota uh, Wolf Project. So um, yeah, take us through that. So the position that I was hired for was primarily deer trapping. And the study that I then was a part of was, um, and I'll, I'll paraphrase here, but so Dave Meach started studying wolves and he was working on a project at Isle Royal. So the island yep. that's in Lake Superior. Yep. And it's um, an isolated population with wolves and moose. Um, and then very few other, you know, large, generally large mammals. So, you know, wolves, moose, fox, beaver, snowshoe, hare. Um, but there aren't any other predators and moose are the only ungulate. Um, and so at the time, I believe it was Derwood Allen was, uh, had this research project there. Dave Meach was studying under him and Rolf Peterson, who is now the Isle Royal Wolf biologist that lives out there seasonally. Okay. Dave and Ralph were studying out there and, you know, a closed ecosystem, like an island in the middle of a great lake, there's not a lot of um, variables in terms of studying predator-prey relationships. And so Dave came to Northeastern Minnesota in the Superior National Forest to have a study of wolves and their main prey, which was white-tailed deer, still is uh, white-tailed deer, but also have other variables in the equation that he could figure out what are these influences and how does it affect the population. Um, so, you know, up here we've got all sorts of stuff, coyotes, fox, bobcat, lynx, the occasional mountain lion, and then we've got the deer, we've got moose, um, Woodland caribou used to be here. They were extirpated. Um, and then people. Not a whole lot at that time, but people enjoying the forest, recreating, living in the woods, you know. And so it was a more maybe accurate picture of wolves on the landscape with humans. And that's why he came here to, to start this project. And so as a predator prey study, you also, you know, you need to track the predators, but you need to track prey as well to get your data. So I was hired for the winter deer trapping. Okay. So you don't trap here. You don't trap wolves in the winter uh, because the forest cover is too thick to do any kind of aerial darting like they do out west. And so wolf trapping. What is, what is aerial darting? Um, so, for example, like in Yellowstone National Park. Um, when they want to put a radio collar on a wolf, because it's such a wide open habitat or ecosystem, um, and the wolves can travel much farther, you know, and it make it harder for traps to be set and not catch other animals, um, they target by using a helicopter. So they, you know, they send out a helicopter and there's a biologist with a dart gun and they dart the wolves from the air or gotcha. they use nets. Um, okay. There's net rockets, basically like a big shotgun that shoots a net. Got and, it. Um, so for wolves here in Minnesota, it's just not practical. Yep. And so you trap during the summer and the fall using foothold traps. But before you trap an animal, it could be days. It could be, you know, there were some traps where we didn't catch something for a couple of weeks. Okay. And so how often are you checking the traps? Daily. Every okay. day. Got yep. It. Every morning. Um, and especially in the wintertime, you know, the temperatures can dip really low overnight. And so if an animal was trapped and is in this thing overnight, 
you need to be mindful that they're, they might be chilly. You know, they're made to be outside hundred percent of the time, but when they are having all of these stress hormones, you know, the cortisol and like mm -hmm. us, you know, we are, we have an adrenaline rush. And then if we're not careful, we could go into shock. Um, if it's a really stressful time or injured or we're, you know, whatever. And so, um, early in the morning, every day traps mm -hmm. are checked. Can we pivot to the wolf and is yeah. the process similar? No, <laughs> not at okay. all. So for wolf trapping, and again, different research projects do it differently. For areas with a lot of tree cover like northern Minnesota, foothold traps are the most efficient and effective method. And wolves by nature are territorial and they live in family groups. We call them packs. Oftentimes all of the members of a pack are related except the the male and female, the dominant pair, because they're the mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't want your brother and sister to be starting a family. So they they naturally avoid, you know, inbreeding if possible. Um, Isle Royal is a whole nother program. And so you have these family groups that are establishing, maintaining, and defending a territory. And up here, outside of the boundary waters, there are trails and um, old, you know, railroad track um, paths, logging roads, main roads, driveways. There's all sorts of pathways that wildlife will use because it's the path of least resistance, especially right. yeah. in the wintertime. Um, so when you're trapping wolves, you tend to go to those established trails and trap off of those trails. So in the summertime, the trapping is done in more remote areas, um, not the boundary waters, but remote areas that are a little bit more difficult to access for the average person. Um, because you don't want to inadvertently catch somebody's dog. Mm, that yeah. You know, out walking off of an old road yep. or um, have people, you know, messing around with the traps. Makes sense. Now, in the fall when things up here kind of slow down, there aren't as many people, then that focuses in more in the boundary waters because traffic up in that area is much slower. Um, although it is one of the most beautiful times to go, it's more challenging because a lot of people aren't comfortable camping when it's 40 degrees or colder, but sure. that's when the wolf trapping would happen up there because of that. And so the trapping up there would be on portage trails because the wolves if they're traveling in the forest, they might check out up and down a portage trail or hiking trails. And the method is the same. Um, so a foothold trap is kind of what you would imagine. You know, it's like a um, when it's closed, it's like this. And then you set it and it's like this. And then the animal steps in the middle and it closes on their foot. Okay. And then there are different types of footholds. So if you're trapping for harvesting fur, you might have a different like model or style of foothold trap. So the, the study traps have been modified significantly to reduce the potential for injury. Okay. And that means on the jaw. So like on the, um, you know, you've got the, the jaws that come together yep. like this on the, part that's going to close around the foot, they're usually lined with something that flexes like rubber. Okay. And then they often have like offset teeth. So not sharp teeth necessarily, but like square teeth that interlock. But what that does is when it closes on a foot, it leaves open spaces so that blood circulation can that makes total sense. Yep. Effectively. Again, now, very humane. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's still controversy around the whole idea um, of foothold traps and, and things like that. And so you kind of have to weigh, you know, is the, the information gathered as a result of this worth the few instances where animals are injured? Um, and that again is a whole nother conversation. Um, but that's why they, there's such heavy modifications is to really reduce any chance of that. Um, but swelling is always, you know, anytime you restrict, you know, if you, your watch is too tight, 
you know, you're going to, you're going to feel that you're going to have some swelling or discomfort. Um, And then another modification that was there when I worked, and again, it's been a long time since I've done this, um, was an ampule, you know, uh, trying to figure out the camera, maybe like an inch high and it's rubber. So it almost looks like um, when you have a bicycle tire and the little air thing sticks out, yeah, um, that you can put air into it. It's kind of like that with a little bit of the rubber flap, and those are zip tied to the outside of the trap, and inside the little um, rubber knob that sticks up is um, a sedative. Okay. So depending on, you know, what sedatives are available, like a common one that you might have for your dog at the vet clinic is acepromazine and it, it chills the animal out and it, it makes them a little bit, you know, loopy. But the idea is that if they start chewing at the trap, which is a normal reaction to figure out what is on my foot, they'll eat that and the tiny pieces of rubber will pass through, but then they'll absorb the sedative and it helps kind of calm them down and mellow them out in the moment. So then when it kind of wears off, they're more calm. You know, they've kind of processed that initial shock of what's going on and that fear response. Um, and then most of the time when you would approach the wolf in the trap, they're lying down and they're kind of hanging out, waiting there. And when I did it, a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, you know, wouldn't the animal attack you? And isn't that scary? And 99 times out of 100, the wolf is going to react submissively because they're afraid of us. And so they kind of cower. Um, But they do, they, they have a, you know, a six to eight foot chain that's attached to that trap and then a grappling hook um, at the end of the chain. So that this trap was not staked you know, in one spot, it was designed to allow the wolf to run. And then eventually it catches that hook in the forest on vegetation or a oh, root wow. or a okay. tree. Yeah. So that burst of, you know, like when we get that fight or flight response, yeah. adrenaline, and then we, we do one of those two things. So if the flight response kicks in, they can run and it bounces that chain along and then it eventually catches. It catches. Yeah. Wow. So that's that so way they're not tugging at their, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, harming the musculature yeah. of their shoulder or, you know, stretching their foot. So, so wolves, um, this is my, my naive here, right. But like wolves, my understanding is like they're traveling in packs, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens, what, what, what's going on with the other wolves when an individual wolf gets trapped? Um, so we don't know unless there's a game camera, uh, which a lot of times now that game cameras, you know, in the last 10 years, you can get one for $25. Um, so having a game camera facing the trap, you know, there's way, way more information about wolf behavior and how they react when they're trapped now than when I was doing it. Um, and I'm not privy to a lot of that. I'm kind yeah. of not in that world anymore. Yep. But, you know, wolves generally travel in packs, but they don't all necessarily travel in a single file line all the time. Got it. So wintertime, a lot of the, you know, imagery we see is they're all traveling in the same path because it's efficient for them in deep snow, which is true. But in the summertime, especially if it's a breeding pack where they have pups, one or two wolves might go out and kind of spread out in the forest hunting for food for the pups. Um, so they, they're in a pack, but they're not always traveling with each other. So when you come across a, a wolf that's been trapped, you're not worried that there's 50 other wolves kind of hiding in the trees ready to come get you. No. <laughs> No. And there's only been, um, and it wasn't me. It was a uh, person that I knew that had yeah. trapped before where there were other wolves, um, three or four of them hanging out in mm. an area, but that was because it was a pup that was trapped. So summer trapping is also a time where you can um, trap pups. Now the, the foothold traps, there are different sizes for different reasons. 
Um, so the smaller the animal, the smaller the trap, the bigger animal, the bigger the trap, but those, the um, pan that's in the middle when the trap is open and set um, only pushes down when a certain weighted animal steps on it. So pups generally don't even trigger the trap until they're at least 40 pounds, 50 pounds, which would be late summer. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so in late summer, the pups, you know, are by October, they're basically adult size looking. Um, they might not be as heavy as an adult yet, but they're still big enough to trigger a trap. And so those that might, you know, get more wolves to hang out because it's a young wolf and, you know, they're kind of keeping an eye on it. Uh, but they also get different collars too. So they get, you know, if that's the goal to get pups collared so that they can understand the pup behavior and travel, you know, what they're doing, the collars are expandable. So they're designed to grow with the wolf as it matures. So once the wolf is in the trap, is the process kind of similar to that of the process for the deer where you're trying to get them re released as quickly as possible? Kind of. Um, so we definitely don't lay on top of them. Um, <laughs> that would <laughs> result in a, in a bad situation. Um, so in order to administer the drugs to a wolf, they use what's called a jab stick. And this is used for, you know, a variety of of applications in wildlife um, and sometimes domestic situations. If you have a dog that's very fear aggressive, okay. you can't get close to it to anesthetize it. Um, and what it is, it's just basically like a, a four to five or six foot long pole with a spring mounted syringe on the end. Okay. So you load that and you get as close as you can and you literally jab yep. very, very quickly. Um, and so the needles are very, you know, intentionally chosen so that it's a thicker needle. It can get through the hide of the animal because wild animals have very thick hides, sure. you know, so it gets through that hair and the hide, but it, the, it won't break. Um, and it's, you know, if it bends, it takes a lot of force to bend um, because once you jab it in there, the animal is probably going to flinch or sure. move away and you push on it to depress the syringe with that spring. The idea is that you are going to jab it in an area of the body that has a lot of padding so that there's very little risk of injury. You're not going to poke the bone, which, you know, doesn't have necessarily long-term effect, but it, it's, it hurts, you know, yeah. you don't want yeah. to hurt them if you, if you can't. And so basically the hip, you know, between the front of the hip and the tail, there's some nice meaty muscle there. Um, and so you jab them and then very quickly back away. And so you can just barely see it, you know, wherever you are and just sit down and you don't talk, keep it things very quiet with anesthesia. And this is true for us too. The more stimulus that we have, you know, whether it's auditory or physical touch, the faster we process through and metabolize those drugs. And so um, we want the animal to stay calm. We want them to, you know, absorb this, um, this drug into their system. And then they'll eventually, you know, they'll fight it. You'll see them bobbing their head. They don't want to give into it because behaviorally they don't want to make themselves vulnerable. Um, and so once they put their head down um, and, you know, we make some noises and they're not moving their head and their ears aren't, you know, trying to listen, yeah. then we know that that drug has taken effect and we get closer. And so the first thing you do is you put a muzzle on them, but it protects the animal. It protects their eyes from whatever, because sometimes they don't shut their eyes when they get anesthetized. And this is the same with deer. They sure. also got a muzzle that had um, a face patch. So it went over their muzzle and then it covered up their head. So that's to protect them as well. And then very quickly go through, you know, they get weighed, they get a blood sample taken. They do get their teeth inspected. So with wolves and carnivores like wolves, um, there are tooth charts that age an animal based on the wear 
of those teeth. So the wear of the um, carnassials and the molars, which are in the on the sides in the back, um, the more worn down they are, the older the animal is generally. Yeah. And okay. so trying to age the animal using those established methods of wear on the teeth and then making note, you know, do they have a broken canine? Um, and then also checking in the mouth. So like I mentioned before, they might bite at the trap and they might bite at anything near them. And some of that anxiety might be destroying the shrub, you know, that they're stuck on. Um, and so there have been cases where a wolf will get like a, a stick or a twig caught between their teeth on the palate. Um, so checking the palate in the mouth to make sure that there's no foreign debris that got stuck up in there. Um, and then doing a full physical check, you know, palpating all of the body to make sure that they haven't injured themselves, you know, pulling the trap off, making sure that the trap where it was, that location, if there's any swelling, you know, they carry ice packs um, for if it's a hot day, but also that can help with swelling, you know, kind of rubbing the foot a little bit and they carry hot packs. So um, again, wildlife are, can be really sensitive when they're under anesthesia and the environmental conditions make a big deal. So if it's a really hot day, they're going to put the ice packs, you know, in the groin area and between their front arms to help cool the body and keep it cool. Or if it's a really cold day, hot packs in those area and a blanket to make sure that that animal, um, that their body temperature stays within the normal range. Um, so again, taking the temperature and, you know, so somewhat similar to the deer, the same safety precautions, the same, you know, checking, measuring, weighing, um, all of those same things, but the, the anesthesia part is a little bit different. Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, you're clearly, you know, you had the education, you got the degree, like you, this is a very methodical process, but I'm curious, like just for you, what was like, what was it like to connect with nature on this kind of a level? It was really, it was really cool <laughs> for one, um, because the more I did, the more I thought I can totally take my degree in animal science and apply it to wildlife. I just need to get extra experience. And in terms of academic studies, you know, an agriculture degree, which is more of what I had, still covers a lot of similar things, you know, ecology and anatomy and genetics. Um, they're just on different animals and different situations. And so as I was doing this work, I was also learning and educating myself on those specific species. So deer or, you know, I was very interested in moose and the other um, members of the weasel family that the pine marten is part of, you know, otters and fisher and mink. I had a ton of resources at this internship because we were staying at the field station where this project had been going on for decades. So there was so many accumulated resources where I kind of could do my own side thing and then learning on the job as well. And so it really helped me figure out like, yes, I can totally do this. So if I'm going to continue on that path to grad school, this is a wonderful experience that will show I'm capable and competent at doing this kind of a thing. But then on a more personal level, you know, those are things that I experienced that no, the average person will never have an opportunity. Absolutely. To Absolutely. And not only that, but being connected with the other wildlife studies going on in the area, you know, there's, um, there's a black bear study. Um, they started at, at, during this time was when the state of Minnesota started investing resources in understanding the links of Minnesota. And it, up until this time, it was there wasn't data to support that there was a reproducing lynx population in Minnesota. Um, and so they wanted to do studies. They wanted to radio collar. They wanted to get the actual hard data to support yes or no. Is there a reproducing population? So I got to help um, when they processed a lynx. I got to go help with that and get my hands on an actual lynx. And, you know, those are things that connect you to nature in a completely different way where you start understanding the processes that you read in a book or you watch on a documentary kind of all come together. Absolutely. 
it's actually happening. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. So I I vividly remember my time um, in the Boundary Waters. And actually on that trip, we also did um, three nights on Isle Royal. So I remember that too. And I remember um, just specifically thinking about wolves. And one night in the Boundary Waters, we were just sitting around our campfire and we heard this pack of wolves. I mean, and it, like there had to be 20 or 30. I mean, there, there were so many uh, howling voices. It was absolutely incredible. But, you know, we were warned when we went in that they're, um, it's very unlikely that you're going to see a wolf. You'll hear them, but you're not going to see them because they stay away. I'm just curious, like for you being on the academic side of this and studying them, like what, what did you learn in this process about the wolf? And what do you want people to know about the wolf? It's to me, it's such a like, it's this very mysterious, cunning creature. Yeah. You know, um, so after after this field tech job, I took an internship at the International Wolf Center and applied to grad school to study Pine Martins out in, in the East Coast, but then was offered a job at the Wolf Center and I took it. And so I, I never ended up going to grad school, but working at the, the Wolf Center, you know, a lot of that education and, and some of what I talk about even now with like family or friends that aren't familiar or uncomfortable with true wilderness. Um, and for me, true wilderness is where there are things that make you lower on the food chain. Yeah. <laughs> so you are part of the food chain in some cases. Um, you know, not realistically, there's nothing hunting you to eat you here. Yep. But it adds that element of it's my responsibility to be informed and aware of how, of what I'm entering. So I'm entering the ecosystem of these animals and how my behavior might change interactions. So being responsible with my campsite, you know, food storage, cleanup, all of those things with wolves and with all the wildlife really that we have here, they're going to avoid you as much as you want to avoid them. And they have adapted to living in this environment where there's a human presence. So they might avoid you, but they might not necessarily be petrified of you. You know, they might be curious and, and that's okay. It's not okay if you have, you know, garbage everywhere and you left your bird feeder out, you know, all spring and you're attracting bears, you know, or wolves or whatever, animal that also scavenges, which is pretty much everything. Um, if they can get a free meal, they will because it's less energy they have to spend. You know, but if you're out in the woods and you're hiking on a trail and you see a wolf cross the trail in front of you, that doesn't mean they're there because of you. Yeah. You just happen to see them crossing the trail when they cross the trail. You know, and it's very rare that a wolf is going to approach you or follow you. Now, if you have a dog with you, that can completely change the scenario because for wolves, dogs, especially dogs that are wolf size or not quite, you know, like a lab, they're not as big as a wolf, but they look wolf-like mm -hmm. by shape. The wolf might see that as an intruder in their territory, you know, um, maybe not as another wolf, but definitely another canine that might be there to steal its resources or to kill their pups, you know? So a dog's presence will definitely change the behavior of a wolf versus just a human walking in the woods. And, and that's a huge difference. Um, and that's where we, you know, if you see fresh wolf sign, maybe don't take your dog in that area, go somewhere else. Um, your idea. dog on a leash. You know, don't let your dog roam. I would say when I was working at the Wolf Center, we offered a service called the helpline where people could call with concerns or questions. Most of the time that a dog was attacked by wolves was when the dog was off leash, allowed to roam way ahead or way behind or in the woods, um, or was allowed to roam outside. And it might have been by the house, but if they're not enclosed or secured in some way, that is kind of an open invitation for any wildlife to defend themselves 
in whatever way they think is appropriate. And so, you know, it's kind of just common sense safety. Yeah, it, it is actually, and it's, it's good. It's good awareness too. We, we, we definitely had our dog with us when we did our canoe trip into the boundary waters, but we kept him very close. Mm-hmm. So, so Jess, um, should we as humans be afraid of the big bad wolf? Uh, generally, no, I don't think so. I honestly, and I'm not, um, you know, promoting one a way to think one way or the other about mountain lions, but mountain lions scare me more than anything. It just, <laughs> you know, just the way that they, they, um, their behavior yeah. and the way that they hunt their techniques. Um, and same with grizzly bears, you know, when I go out to grizzly country, um, in Alaska, we were up in Denali national park and there's a lot of areas where, you know, on the rivers, there's spaces where bears could hide. And just knowing that grizzly bears are very different than black bears, you know, I'm used to black bears, black bears run away from you. And if they try to come by you and you just do nothing, you know, like the behavior is just so different. You know, you fight back with a black bear and they kind of like, Oh no, you know, um, grizzly bears, I just, I'm not as familiar with them and same with lions. So for those animals, like I take way more precautions when I'm going into a wilderness setting, when those animals are present, like every precaution that's recommended, you know, bear spray, um, making a lot of noise, you know, always kind of checking around my surroundings. Whereas here, you know, we have black bears, we have wolves, we have coyotes, the only precautions that I actively think about is if I'm taking my dogs with me and making sure they stay close if they're off leash, like if we're hunting for grouse um, or, you know, we're walking on a trail. I always kind of watch for sign. If I see a really fresh wolf scat, I'm going to be much more diligent. I might even put my dog, you know, make them heal because I don't want them to get too far ahead of me. Um, and if I'm by myself, it's just a matter of, you know, do I have any food that smells really strong? You know, are we out in the boundary waters and we went fishing and we caught a lot of fish? Um, we're going to cook them up. You know, we're going to not leave them in the campsite overnight for long periods of time. And the fish guts we're going to dispose of appropriately so that we're not attracting those animals to our campsite. So, no, I don't think people need to be afraid of, yeah. of wolves. It's it's just a very different mindset when you're out in the wilderness versus being in the big city. Yeah. So, so Jess, you've lived um, a very diverse life from, you know, studying to the Appalachian Trail to into um, being a field technician for for these uh, trapping based research projects and then and then working at the Wolf Center. And now you're at the Dorothy Moulter Museum. I'm just curious, like for you, if there's this common thread that sort of connects it all together for you. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, there's kind of the obvious thread of outdoorsy wilderness settings that I'm drawn to being in an area where I'm not at the top of the food chain to me is like a challenge. And I like that challenge. Um, even though there's really no risk to me, you know, if I, if I'm smart about it, but the evolution of, you know, from horses to root beer kind of followed that wilderness path, you know, the Appalachian trail, was, I mean, technically it's not true wilderness. You're pretty close to the East coast where the most, you know, humans are in the United States. Um, but you were off the beaten path. You were at least a day's hike from help kind of a thing to Ely, which we have amenities here. You know, we have a grocery store, we have a hospital, we have things that you would need. Um, but it's still remote. It's, it's 20 minutes from the next nearest town. It's, you know, at the, literally the end of the road. Um, and, and the Wolf Center focuses on wildlands yeah. and wildlife and Dorothy lived in the wilderness, you know? So now I'm not necessarily teaching about specific species, but it's more of a holistic education. It's wilderness education. Yeah. Really is yeah. what it is. Yeah. And so Jess, I mean, this, this, the story with this common thread of wilderness education throughout your whole life, at some point, Hollywood's going to pick up on your story and they're going to want to make a movie about you. 
<laughs> and uh, and when they do, I want to know who the Hollywood actress is going to be that's going to play you in your movie. So I was trying to uh, think about what would be appropriate and somebody that kind you know could pass for me, but I think I'd go with Jennifer Lawrence. Nice. Um, okay. I mean, she. I. It's more her attitude. She just. She can be sassy. Yeah. And she can be goofy and and self-deprecating in a in a positive way, um, but she can also be really serious. And so I, I think she has the qualities of an actress that I I would like. I love that. Yeah, totally. What's your movie going to be called? This is going to be long-winded a little bit. So on this Boundary Waters trip that I just came from, I just kind of happened in conversation where I was talking about all of these things that I've done in my life and experiences that I've been fortunate enough and privileged enough to enjoy. Um, and they were like, man, your resume would be like six pages long. <laughs> and so remembering that, I feel like some cheesy title, like, you know, a life well lived um, yeah, okay. or an adventure life well lived. I don't know. Cause I've had, it dawned on me that I have had some crazy experiences that the average person just would not have. <laughs> I love it. The Adventure Life Well-Lived starring Jennifer Lawrence. It's going to be a great go. movie. There I can't go. wait. Well, the other thing that you said um, a couple of times that really resonated with me was I'm not the top of the food chain. And when you're in the wild, I just, that's, that, those are words to live by out there for sure. That's yeah. a great one. Um, Jess, thank you so much for the time that you gave me today. I really appreciate it. It was really fun to learn about wolves and the process that you go through. Um, just really appreciate it and admire uh, the work that you do. And for those listening, I hope you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope that Jess's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or just need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thanks for listening. Jess, thanks so much for being back here today. Thanks for having me. 